Hola. Hello. Bienvenidos a Enredo. A podcast about raising bilingual children. I do like to read with my mama. This is Monica. And this is Paula. Welcome to Entre Dos, a podcast about raising bilingual children. Uh, so the challenges of passing heritage down to kids, in my personal experience, are also probably the most exciting things and the opportunities, because I get to do something that many immigrants and their children end up doing when they immigrate. We pick and choose and constantly negotiate between our cultures. And that said, it does sometimes feel like twice the work because I do want to share with my kids the books that I grew up with, but also I want them to know Goodnight Moon and The Little Engine That Could and the same movies and cartoons um, you know, from my heritage culture and also something that you know, their peers are watching and doing, so they're not going to be these kids who are completely missing out on um, what's considered you know, age-appropriate or socially appropriate um, uh, cultural exposure, so to speak. And there's really just so much time in a day so that's, it's always feeling like trying to negotiate what's more. This is writer Masha Rumer, who on this episode talked to us about her experiences raising Russian English bilingual children in the U.S. Masha lives in the Bay Area, where she writes about parenting and the immigrant experience. She is currently working on a book called Parenting with an Accent which will be published by Beacon Press in 2021. Maybe we've talked about this before, but one of the reasons we called this podcast Entre Dos was to convey that feeling of being in between two cultures and languages. Sometimes they compete, other times they live in harmony, and it's up to us to find the right balance. Here's our conversation. Um, well, Masha, thank you so much for joining us. We're excited to talk to you um, about your experience as a bilingual parent and a writer, somebody who writes about it. So before we dig deeper, can you give us a glimpse into your bilingual home? Who are its members? Who speaks what? What languages do you speak? Um, absolutely. And I'm, I'm really happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Um, so um, our household is made up of four people. There's me. Um, I was born in the former Soviet Union in St. Petersburg, Russia, and I immigrated when I was 13 years old. Um, my husband is American, so he does not speak Russian, although he knows a few words. And uh, we have two kids, um, four and six years old. And um, in terms of speaking, uh, um, so my husband speaks English and some Spanish, and uh, it's it's a constant process to get my kids to speak Russian, um, but we're trying the best that we can. Did you get started from birth? Um, yes. Yeah, so with my oldest one, the six-year-old one, I uh, tried when she was born doing the, the OPOL method, O-P-O-L, one parent, one child. And, um, you know, I read to her exclusively in Russian. I spoke to her in Russian, sang songs in Russian. Um, so that seemed to be going pretty well, of course, up until I went back to work full time and then she went to an all-American daycare and then she started protesting Russian to, to a, a lot of disappointment for me um, because 
um, it was kind of a painful process because language is something that really connects our whole family to the people, to the culture, and to so many things. And uh, to not um, be able to speak that language just means sort of cutting off or at least restricting um, so many of those resources and so many of those connections. Right. And, and you know, it's, um, I remember that, that the, the first article that I read from you was um, one where you were talking about how you were sort of creating this environment where you were sort of shielding your children a little bit from Anglo culture, and you were trying to expose them more to your Russia, Russian heritage, right? Um, and you're in some ways, I mean, that's something that Paula and I have spoken about a lot because um, you have to create in America, really, this sort of bubble because this is such a strong monolingual culture, right? So how do you, how, how do you, how do you do this at home? And and just talk to us a little bit about that sort of the, the struggle of sort of being part of just sharing two cultures. In my case, so yes, we did start with um, one parent, um, one language. So my husband spoke English, I spoke Russian. Um, and I actually thought I had it pretty much under control at that time. And at that time, uh, there was one moment, actually, I went, um, I was talking to an acquaintance of mine who is uh, from India. And she was complaining that her kids, her two children do not speak Hindi. They're refusing. And I was just so confused. And I was trying to give her advice. I was like, well, did you try asking them to speak Hindi? I mean, you speak it and your husband speaks it. So like, what's what's the big deal? And she kind of gave me a look. So I, I realized that I probably didn't say something right. But very soon I was in the same boat. Um, like I said, she went to an American daycare and then my son was born and he went to an American daycare and um, it became a struggle. Our culture is incredibly monolingual, even though there are more and more people speaking a different language at home. I think it's one out of four. Um, one out of five, I have to double check. Um, but there is a very monolingual view of bilingualism. Bilingualism is seen as um, something that's the you know transitional phase. It's not the norm. Um, and some people still see it as a defect, which is an idea that um, comes from you know over a century ago when it was seen to be detrimental to a child's um, cognitive development, right? Um, and the kids just want to fit in. Um, and I, I find the older she gets and the older my son gets, I, the more I find that there's kind of a, it becomes more and more of a struggle to retain that language and to keep that bubble as you refer to it. Um, so I guess in terms of some strategies, just language, language wise, I try to read to them in Russian as often as possible, um, ideally every night. But if they want an American book, or English language book, I don't force it, and I just read that to them. Um, and I can talk about that in a second, how um, I came to that conclusion, personally. We have fairy tales. I try to remind myself to speak Russian to them. Um, but if I pick them up from preschool and they're giving me like a word that's, that does not have any equivalent, it's really hard to even discuss it in a language that's you know my language and not the majority language. We sing a lot of songs, cook... Um, we try to watch a lot of family movies as well, um, but sometimes it's hard if they don't have subtitles. And that's, I think, another issue many families come across. If one person in the family does not speak the language, it can sort of um, make them feel excluded. And I don't feel comfortable always doing that. Um, there's also this really cool 
cartoon, um, rather drawing tutorial by this Russian guy from Russia, where he draws little pictures um, online like Nutella or unicorns. And they love to follow along and they learn that way. So just try to make language fun and make it a part of their everyday. Um, but there was a time period uh, when my daughter refused to speak it, which I mentioned already. And I tried everything I could. I was pleading with her. I tried to bribe her with candy um, and like pretend to not understand um, just for a little while. And, and then I was like, oh, my God, I, I really cannot keep doing this anymore. I'm at home so little time after I come back from work. And personally, I decided that's not the approach that worked for me. But um, a lot of parents decide differently. But, you know, just in my experience, I decided just to speak the language that she wanted to use to communicate with me and to connect. Plus, there was a new baby in the house, so I didn't want to lose her that way um, and lose her trust. Um, but then um, we still continued to watch cartoons once in a while. Um, obviously, more now because <laughs> because of the lockdown, right? But that, but it's always you figure if you have a language, a different language, cartoon on or video, it's it's educational, right? <laughs> it's not just fun. Um, <laughs> so like, yep, there's learning for you. So I, I know that there's research that shows, obviously, videos are not a substitute for language education. There has to be exposure indoor, uh, inside, outside of the house with native speakers, not like a screen. But at the same time, there was this really funny video series for kids where the family is playing doctor and treating sick animals um, in that video, kind of a make-believe doctor's office. Like they had a Minnie Mouse that was given soup for her stomach ache. Because Russians use soup for pretty much every ailment that there is. Um, <laughs> and then there was this teddy bear getting a shot with a plastic syringe on his butt. And two animals were talking in these really cute voices. Um, and it was really fun for her. And then the next day I come into my room and I see all of her stuffed animals are lined up on the floor. And she's wearing the story mm -hmm. stethoscope and tending to them in Russian, just like she saw in the video. So I was like, aha! A breakthrough. Um, and that was the beginning of phase two when I started to reintroduce Russian again and feeling like she's open to it. So I followed her cues. They seem to come around and just kind of go through ups and downs uh, with, with language. It's pretty amazing. Um, have you found any outside support in the sense of like maybe play groups or tutoring? Like, do they do anything outside the home or do they, you know, with the Russian speaking community? That's a really great question. Um, for the most part, in terms of, I guess, quantity and quality, it's been me. Um, but there are some families in, um, in the town where I live that have a pretty similar structure. It just so happens that the mother is Russian speaking and the father isn't. And they have kids um, who they want to uh, raise bilingual as well. So we do get together and sometimes have these very deliberate play dates where we try to um, entertain them with these kind of a, a reading, um, um, maybe like a, a sing-alongs or have reading events for them or even uh, do uh, Russian holidays, like invite this Russian Santa Claus and his uh, granddaughter, who uh, Snigurichka her name is, to throw these fake snowballs at each other and sing traditional songs. So we do the best that we can. Um, they also have grandparents that live about an hour away, so we try to visit them um, every couple of weeks. Um, so they can have a little bit of conversation there. So for the most part, that's been our normal. But now with this lockdown, um, I guess the silver lining of that is that um, we signed my daughter up um, for a distance learning program. 
Um, and one of the classes includes Russian group lessons for about half an hour a day. And I have seen a tremendous difference in the way she reads and speaks. She did it before, um, a little bit slower, but now she's really advanced. Yes, it's amazing. Formal classes. My, my daughter took, um, um, for I think an entire summer, she took a class, Spanish class. And it was kind of very didactic, but it's amazing how just quickly she took to it. And, and, and just the, 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 she started reading in Spanish, right? Like a month after she started the classes. And it was something that it was kind of amazing to see how this level of structure was necessary for her and that I really wasn't providing it as much as home. Um, and it really got me thinking about dual language education, right? And my lack of access to it. Um, and I started work. She, she's in kinder right now. And we might be able to start in August um, a dual language program, Spanish English, which is super exciting. But I wonder, like, how, how um, do you have access to something like that where you live, where it would be part of, of her curriculum? You know, that's such a great question. And I'm so glad that um, you might have that opportunity with the, you know, dual language or language immersion. We, um, yeah, there are some programs where I live. <laughs> They're a little bit far. And that's always been a challenge. I mean, it's, it's, everything is a challenge, right? It's, it's all about how much does a person want to really do that. Um, there are programs, it's a bit of a drive. Um, and they do offer language classes and cultural kind of exposure classes on weekends. So I might give that a try. Um, and of course, I did try when she was younger and with with her brother also, um, like a piano classes, but she was just too young at the time. And then there was a dance class. But again, there was this huge traffic. And it was like a two hour driving with like two small kids in the car, one of them screaming and being hungry. So um, we had to put that on hold. But I, I do wish there was something like that, actually. Um, unfortunately, not at the moment for where I live. I, I was thinking you've talked a lot about your daughter, but I'm curious to know about your four-year-old um, and if your experience has been different. We often hear about siblings having a different experience or maybe it being a little bit harder to get them to learn that language, the minority la or the target language. And I'm curious to know what your experience has been. I am definitely finding that um, in, in my situation as well. Her sibling, who is two years younger, um, speaks, um, he's a lot more resistant, I would say, to speaking Russian. I've had him like throw, I would try to like mold Play-Doh letters with him together and uh, he would refuse to make the Russian letter. He would insist on making the English letter. <laughs> and again, I'll be like, here's a cookie. Why don't you make the Russian letter? We'll watch a cartoon later. And then he, at one point he just got so mad at me, he threw the Play-Doh on the floor and just stormed out of the room. <laughs> Um, like no English, and then when I pick him up from daycare and I speak to him in Russian, like oh, how was your day? What did you make today? Mm -hmm. And he gets really embarrassed. He's like, no Russian, mommy, no Russian. Um, but the sister, whenever he does that, um, she says, no, don't say that. This is our special language with mommy. But then he still doesn't like that. He's like, oh no, and then storms out. He's actually doing a little bit better. I think it's just a phase. So what I learned from my experience of my older is just be like, okay, I'll just try to meet you where you're at, wherever that might be. Um, but he's been a little bit less resistant lately. We had a, an episode, this was, I think, last year, I'm losing track, but we interviewed Sabine Little, who is um, a researcher in, in language um, in, in Great mm -hmm. Britain. And she had 
um, a similar situation with her son. Um, she she's uh, trying to teach her son German. That's her heritage language. And she had to take a break because her son told her that he was was feeling overwhelmed. Um, learning both uh, both like do going to school in English and then doing German at home because she was trying to sort of formalize the process a little bit and 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 she agreed she they took a break for a year and then after a year he asked for German again <laughs> so you, you know that is so interesting yes. yeah <laughs> yeah so it's you have to take those I mean it's it's so important to hear what your child is saying and to really take it in and respect right them because it, it can be overwhelming at at their age to to do all of this exactly and that's it's so interesting to sometimes even hear it from from the experts who are struggling with the same thing um i remember reading this um <laughs> study from a german linguist um who was studying uh, i think his daughter and he wrote four volumes about her language development and he would speak to her i believe in german and his wife would speak to her in english so one parent one language and when they lived in germany she still spoke more German, but once they moved to the United States, she started being a lot more English dominant, even, you know, the input in the home being equal. So um, I haven't read those four volumes, but I'm sure it's fascinating to see that even though <laughs> wow. how, they're, how they're trying to, to adapt to that. Um, yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, 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 always, it's, it's always like a, a learning process for the parent um, trying to get, you know, the outcomes we're hoping for, but realizing that might not be possible. I do also want to mention there's been a couple of books that I've really enjoyed that really helped me um, kind of figure out my approach. Um, one of them is um, by Adam Beck. It's uh, called oh, Maximize. Yeah. Oh, yeah, you, you've heard of it. Oh, but, but tell us what it's called. For yeah, it's, yeah. Um, I've heard of him. <laughs> sure. It's called, uh, yeah. So it's called Maximize Your Child's Bilingual Ability. It's very conversational. He's writing it from a parent's perspective. And just to kind of reflect on, on our conversation that so much of it is the approach and then not just like, well, you speak it and then the child will hear it and speak it back to you, right? Half of the book roughly is all about our own mentality and how we view bilingualism and bilingual parenting. And then the second half is um, like practical suggestions. It's very funny and a very easy read. So that's Adam Beck's uh, Maximize Your Child's Bilingual Ability, which I really enjoyed. And the other book, it's a little bit more academic because it's written by psycholinguist uh, Francois Grosjean, um, where he talks generally about bilingualism. But it's, again, super easy to follow and read um, and makes, makes a topic of bilingualism, you know, among adults and kids very accessible. And it's called uh, Bilingual Life and Reality. He has a column on, I think, psychology today, maybe. Um, yeah, but I haven't, we have, I haven't read his book. Um, so those are great, great suggestions. Going beyond language, your writing has covers a lot of issues that I think are relatable to to us and to a lot of our listeners. Like you wrote about picking a name for your son that works in your cultures and or learning how to cook Russian dishes um, to make at home, and you know, finding those books from your childhood from your childhood. Um, could you talk a little bit more about the cultural aspect of raising your children and, and what do you find more challenging about parenting in two cultures? Absolutely. Um, and actually, if I could just preface, I, I looked up uh, one out of five children 
speak uh, a language other than English at home um, in the United States today, just to clarify that. And the number keeps growing. So, um, yes, but the challenges uh, of uh, so the challenges of passing heritage down to kids, in my personal experience, are also probably the most exciting things and the opportunities because I get to do something that many immigrants and their children end up doing when they immigrate. We pick and choose and constantly negotiate between our cultures. And that said, it does sometimes feel like twice the work because I do want to share with my kids the books that I grew up with, but also I want them to know Goodnight Moon and The Little Engine That Could and the same movies and cartoons um, you know, from my heritage culture and also something that you know, their peers are watching and doing, so they're not going to be these kids who are completely missing out on um, what's considered you know, age-appropriate or socially appropriate um, uh, cultural exposure, so to speak. And there's really just so much time in a day so that's, it's always feeling like trying to negotiate what's more important, what I do now. Um, do I play, make these letters out of Play-Doh or do I send them to a playgroup where they're going to sing all these American songs? Um, and then another thing, I guess, in being a, a parent in a multicultural family is probably social and identity related. Um, when I first became a parent personally, I found it a little bit of isolating. It's, I think it's a common experience for you know, any new parent, this identity crisis in some way. Um, but self-discovery as a new parent is a little bit extra challenging, I find, for people who are born elsewhere. And it certainly was for me. Um, things like finding my tribe, you know, do I listen to some old school advice <laughs> from my culture? Um, like, do I feed her water when she cries? <laughs> or do I not pick her up when she is crying because, you know, I will spoil her if I do that, which is what a lot of people in my culture believe. Or do I follow the American advice? Um, and also when my first child was born, I somehow felt really homesick without even knowing, you know, where that home is anymore. Um, and it, the country where I grew up no longer exists, the Soviet Union. Um, the city no longer exists. Uh, it was, I mean, it does exist, of course, but it was renamed St. Petersburg from Leningrad and it changed dramatically. Uh, but then um, also at the same time when I was listening to popular songs and reading the popular books from my culture that I grew up with, um, I found that a lot of them had this communist propaganda that I, I wasn't aware of as a child, of course. Um, and some of it, some of the content was what we would consider today kind of sexist and even a little bit xenophobic. So that rubs me the wrong way as an American, and I end up skipping over a lot of those pages when I do read. So it's always like, oh, is that a safe thing to read to her? Not not safe, obviously. I'm not trying to shelter them, but there are certain values that I want them to grow up with and avoid. So that's I'm always like, I feel like I'm sometimes being an arbiter um, of that when I read books from my own childhood. Um, but at the same time, I really love those books, and it's it's like a path to a whole different universe and it has so many wonderful things that I cherish from my own upbringing minus the minus the bad stuff um, and at the same time when I was uh, when I first became a parent and actually the, both of them I would say I felt like I had no attachment to the vestiges of what's traditionally considered to be American childhood like Sesame Street or Gerber Baby or the songs um, because I grew up behind the Iron Curtain and um, everything was incredibly controlled and unavailable from um, entertainment to even some food items. 
So it's always like a constant trade-off for me. Um, I guess one more example is many kids in the former Soviet Union were expected to be these perfect students who excel in sciences and the arts. Um, I also come from a Jewish family where for generations uh, we had to go an extra mile just for the chance of being accepted um, you know, for a job or admitted to a university. Um, and so some of that love of knowledge I try to instill in my kids to a reasonable degree, of course. But at the same time, my husband grew up in a very large family and sports are very important where he's from. Um, but I didn't have a lot of sports growing up because of the more of an academic focus. So it's kind of a negotiation between the two of us sometimes at home. What do we do with our kids? Um, to give you an example, when I was growing up, I studied piano, like practice every day, go to classes three times a week, all these super serious classical composers. We had like no popular melodies we could play at all. My teacher, towards right before I left, ended up sneaking some jazz uh, to teach me, but she told me not to tell anybody about it because that was like, <laughs> that was really just unconventional. Um, there was even an entrance exam as a kid to go to a music school. So it's like super, super serious. Um, and then uh -huh. recently my daughter started taking piano classes again um, right before, well, all of, you know, right before the lockdown. And so after her first class, she came back and she's like, Daddy, look what I learned. And she sang him the alphabet song. They're like trying to be super cute. And she's like, do, re, mi, 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 meow, meow, meow. And my husband's like, oh, that is so cute. That was so wonderful. And I heard it from the other room. And I was like, no, that was not wonderful. Please do it again, but do it correctly. And then I'm like, oh, my God. I sound a little bit like a tiger mom. But, um, I mean, <laughs> she knew I, I didn't obviously mean it in, a, in an angry or kind of a punitive way, but which I'm familiar with, um, it was more playful. But she did end up singing it again, and she did sing it correctly next time because um, I knew she knew it um, the right way. So those are just, just some of the examples. It's like a constant negotiation almost. <laughs> exactly. You're currently working on a nonfiction book. Um, Parenting called Parenting with an Accent. Can you tell us about it? Yes, definitely. So I, um, I'm, I'm obviously an, an immigrant, and I spent a few years teaching um, writing and English as a second language um, on a college level. So a lot of issues that I've personally experienced kept coming up for me, um, also on the professional level, just uh, seeing people around me and uh, dealing with some of those same issues, and um, especially after having children, I began writing articles and essays about parenting, but also immigrant identity. And I really tried to find a book to help me navigate the whole immigrant parenting experience, not necessarily an advice book, like, here's how you do this, because I firmly believe that, you know, everybody chooses their own path as, as a parent. And obviously, there's so many types of immigrants and stories, you can't tell somebody how to do something. Um, it's all, it's all very individual. But at the same time, I was hoping to find something I could relate to um, in a narrative form, in a book, and I just didn't find anything like that. Um, but at the same time, I kept hearing these conversations all around me. Um, and when I started publishing articles on the topic, I began getting emails from total strangers, actually, who shared how some of the writing they read from me resonated with them and made them feel a little bit less alone. And uh, I decided to write a book about uh, being an immigrant parent. Um, and, and again, it's um, not a prescriptive book, but it's more of a, 
Um, I'll get into the details in just a little bit, but it, it's more of a look at how people in America do things and try to capture as many experiences as possible. And it will be published by Beacon Press next year. Um, and one other thing is when we talk about language, when we talk about cultures and identity, it's really, as, as you explore in your podcast as well, it's really so much more than just saying, oh, I took AP French in high school um, or eating what some people call ethnic food and then feeling, you know, you're exposed to a culture. Um, but a culture is so much more than that. Um, and a lot of it is stuff that people don't talk about. It's trauma, it's displacement, whether it's voluntary or not. It's the this constant negotiation and straddling of multiple identities. And for a lot of people, it's, you know, poverty and discrimination and even, you know, social isolation and loneliness. Um, sometimes, you know, we feel like that awkward kid in the school cafeteria, right? Um, at least during some phases of our lives. Um, and um, I found that when raising children, whether they're biological or adopted or through a surrogate, that rite of passage can really shore up those feelings all over again. Um, child rearing is really such a communal experience in many traditional cultures, but in our culture, we're sort of we're sort of moved away from it, and we're often alone and fending for ourselves. So those are some thoughts that went into uh, the book when I started thinking about it. Um, and obviously, politically, things have not been very easy for immigrants in the last few years, and that's certainly affected. I mean, that affects the way people feel about immigrants. That affects sometimes the way immigrants feel about ourselves. And certainly language, right? Because um, bilingualism is really influenced by the attitudes around us. Um, that just comes up times and times again. And kids feel those attitudes um, towards them and towards their languages and their cultures. So, yeah, so the book itself is a nonfiction book. It will include or it doesn't it includes interviews with uh, families across the country. Um, I'm also speaking to experts in certain subjects like sociology, uh, childcare, speech language pathology. It's really interesting, and, and and you know when when you're talking about perceptions of of language, as you tie that into you know identity as an immigrant, that is something that definitely you know there's so much subtext subtext with that, and so much subliminal messaging. Even you know when you enter into the sort of as a child, right? When you enter into the school environment where you're alone there, right? <laughs> you're, you know, with your classmates, but that's the first time that you're sort of independent. And when you explore, at least here in the US, you know, the the how bilingual children are are handled, right? With ESL and all of these other sort of very um I think outdated ways of 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 handling children and actually have a skill as opposed to um a handicap. Yeah, and <laughs> it's really interesting to 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 think to sort of think about this in a different way and think about it and okay, well, this is this is a country that is multilingual as opposed to you know these children um, need to be adapting to whatever monolingual um, hegemony right we have in 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 our minds. So it is kind of like um it, it's something that that definitely we've we've in the past we've we've sort of worked in into the podcast but i'm so glad that that you know you're you're really making sure that that's in the book because it's important to talk about it because i think it's so it's it, there's so it, it's not really always there in a way that's very clear it's always sort of in there though very sort of subliminally and and it's difficult and children are you know they perceive everything they're smart 
but they can't always vo- vocalize it. So we have to talk about that those things with them as parents. So they understand. Exactly. It's it's always it's like it's it's not just the negotiation. I mean, we can do all we can to create those bubbles, right? But then they go out into the world, they hear the exactly. news or they see and it's also and I think you actually had a guest um on your on one of your episodes that really pointed this out. Bilingualism, the view of it of course has changed, right? In, in the beginning of the century, some one uh, researcher even called it, it's maybe it leads to mental retardation in children, which is ridiculous <laughs> yeah. and completely untrue. And it does not lead to confusion. It does not lead to any slower delays there. I mean, or any developmental delays. There's actually, um, there are actually so many benefits uh, for, you know, cognitive, social, emotional, not to mention personal for immigrants themselves. But at the same time, there's still this kind of a double view of bilingualism for some people it it's like a sign of you know erudition and intelligence right? right they might say oh my my father spoke all of those languages he was a really smart man or isn't it lovely that you were teaching your child your native language but at the same time um it doesn't always apply to all languages and when we start talking about the people that speak those languages um the narrative may change and it may come from the top, it may come from people around us. There are some studies that, you know, even or um, surveys rather that there was one that came out just last year um, that uh, showed that some people were really irked when they heard a foreign language spoken in public. So there is this, this disconnect, and and like you pointed out, kids definitely feel it, and we feel it. Right? Do we like what language do we speak to our kids when we go outside? Right. Uh, some people adopt this policy of not, you know, one parent, one language. Some people use this, you know, one language at home, another language outside of the home. Not necessarily for any reasons of um, discrimination. It's just something they feel more comfortable with. But um, it's certainly a challenge that I think we need to talk about. In fact, the book, obviously, it's in a very drafty format, but there's a whole chapter or part of it that explores kind of a brief history of immigration and how that sort of affects where we are today. And then there's also a chapter where a large chunk is dedicated to um, our definition of bilingualism and the attitudes towards it. And it's just super fascinating. Just like I, I had no idea about what a struggle it would be in my case to um, retain the language in my family. <laughs> like when I told my Indian friend about, oh, why are you having issues? Isn't it, shouldn't it be so easy? Um, I also had no idea until I started researching it more what um, um, just just how loaded the issue of bilingualism has been for generations um, and still and to some extent today. So that's um, that's definitely something I'm asking parents in the interviews and I'm getting some really interesting responses. I've had people who say that they've been approached at like a supermarket and asked to say, not speak Arabic, but to speak mm-hmm. English only. Um, and um, other such experiences or being, you know, where, what uh, a country of origin or what a different language might uh, represent to the people who might not know any better. Um, and some of the challenges associated with that. So the book will explore some of those, I would say, more difficult and more painful experiences, even though the book obviously celebrates the idea of being um, in a multicultural family and being an immigrant. Thank you to Masha Rumer for sharing her experiences raising bilingual children in the U.S. You can find Masha on Twitter at MashaDC 
or on her website, MashaRumor.com. Let's continue the conversation. Follow us on Instagram at Entre Dos Podcast or join our growing community on Facebook. If you like this episode, please share it with your friends. We'd be so grateful. Hasta la próxima. Nos vemos. Thank you.